you know, when does the utility um, take a backseat to ethos? So would I do that investment? I would probably, I know I would always choose ethics over returns, but that's just me. I also don't have, you know, 250 billion assets under management or whatever Anderson has and those kind of LPs behind them. So. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this latest episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, I am back with my favorite co-host, Professor Dries Fomps, for another one of our inspiration sessions and the first of this latest season six of our show. For you returning listeners, these sessions allow Dries and I to share and discuss something that recently made us learn, made us think, and made us laugh, sharing our different thoughts as researchers and practitioners. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Chris, welcome back. Can you believe we are... We are already on season six. Like, where did time go? I can't <laughs> yeah. believe I can't believe there's already over fifty episodes. <laughs> yes, it's actually quite impressive to see the list if you look at it. So that's nice. It's been a it's been a fun journey. But as I've told you many times, uh, as much as I love talking to founders and innovators, uh, sometimes just geeking out with you on on funny stories and current events is my favorite way to spend an hour of my day. Great. Yeah, well, with that being said, let's not waste any time and let's kick things off uh, with something that made you learn recently, Dries. Yes, and I go a bit here in a territory where I'm not fully confident, so so that's a bit exciting for me. Because, uh, of course, I'm I'm an entrepreneurship professor, but I would say the topic of entrepreneurial finance is not really my core expertise. But today, to start, I want to talk about an academic paper that talks about the topic of uh, post-money valuation, which uh, is a big topic, of course, in uh, startup financing. And the paper I want to discuss with you is published in the journal Financial Economics in 2020, and it's called Squaring Venture Capital Valuations with Reality. And it's published by Gornal and Strebulaev, and Strebulaev is a professor at Stanford. And so this paper mainly looks at post-money valuation of unicorns. So very specific group of startups, uh, startups that get an valuation of more than 1 billion. And maybe before I go into the paper, uh, and maybe you can help me, Garrett, here. <laughs> so 
Um, can you maybe explain what, what post-money valuation means and, and how it's normally calculated? What, what is your experience in that respect? Sure. I, I hope I get this right, that I'm not missing I will help you with academic this. piece. But, um, you know, I, I think to be fair, since you gave a shout out to Strebelayev, who's, who's a GSB at Stanford, it's important that you give a shout out to Professor Gornall, who is a professor at my alma mater, the University of British Columbia. Look so, at that. He is at the Sauter School of Business in uh, the great province of BC. But no, nevertheless, um, you know, it's interesting that you say the importance of post-money valuation. Now, um, I, I should caveat it by saying that the majority of my time and energy is spent with early stage and growth stage companies, not, you know, later stage and, and public companies. But the easy way to, I mean, post-money valuation is actually something that's pretty easy to calculate, right? You have a pre-money valuation, which is what what the valuation of your company is when you're raising your finance. Let's say you, you raise it at a 1 million valuation and you raise 250,000 euros. Post-money valuation is that 1 million plus 250,000 euros. So it's essentially the investment amount divided by the percent that the investor receives. Yep. Indeed. And in the end, that means uh, another way to calculate this, you take all the shares that are out there and you multiply that number by uh, the latest share price based on the last uh, financing round. Yeah. And that's how we calculate indeed post-money valuation. Now, this paper is quite interesting because what these two professors are saying is, this is stupid. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. And, and why are they saying that? They're saying, look, startups go through different financing rounds. You do your seed, series A, series B, series C, series D. And actually, uh, they showed an example where I think SpaceX today is at series X or something like that, <laughs> which is totally crazy. But what you typically see is that in every round, the, the nature of the, the shares becomes different. So typically what you will see is that in later rounds, the, the investors will get additional rights. And these rights are especially important if you go into what they call a down round later on. And so if you would have a round or an IPO where the share price is lower than in the prior rounds. And typically in later stage investment rounds, the investors that invest in these stages will negotiate specific rights that give them preferences when a down round occurs so that they are to some extent protected. Mm -hmm. uh, liquidity preference is a famous example, but there might be even very specific kind of calculations that if there is a down round in the IPO, they get a certain additional amount of money and so on. And so what these professors are saying, you need to take that into account if you calculate the valuation mm -hmm. because there are potential scenarios where your share price in the next round will be lower than the current one. And then all these rights come at play. And if you don't take them into account, you're overestimating substantially the value of the initial investors. Mm -hmm. And so what they did, and to be honest, I don't understand it at all, but <laughs> that's not the big problem. What they did in this paper is to create a complex financial model that helps them to take into account the impact 
of these additional rights that some investors will have. And typically what they see is that these rights that the late stage investors have, have will re reduce the value of the early stage shares, especially in a down round. And so now I will just tell you some of the numbers that they in the end calculated. So and they actually applied that model on 135 US-based unicorns. And so they applied this kind of correction uh, to take into account these special rights. And in this way, they concluded that reported unicorn post-money valuations average 48% above fair value. So hmm. that actually the post-money valuation that tends to be reported is almost 50% above what it actually should be taking into account these rights. Yeah? Hmm. And it also meant that actually, if you would use this calculation, 65 out of the 135 companies that are labeled as a unicorn should not be labeled as a unicorn. Hmm. And they also found out that mutual funds are the ones that often invest as an LP in the late stage, totally ignore this fact. <laughs> so if you look at their reportings uh, in, in their filings, they use the post-money valuation that is reported also in the press and that is based on this simple calculation. But so that implies an inherent risk because if you're in a negative economic setting, and let's agree that today we might be in this kind of setting, it means that the actual value that you will generate will be much lower than the money you have booked in your uh, expectations. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was really kind of an eyeballing observation that we, we do not take into account these, uh, these rights. And in that way, that actually our valuation of companies might be heavily disturbed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. My reaction to this... <laughs> Trees uh, is who cares? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. Like, look, if this was a publicly traded company, right? Like, th that would be vastly, vastly different. But these are privately held companies pre IPO, right? And who cares about valuations in the first place? Like, valuations of of, you know, private companies are like, you know, judges of a gymnastics competition. One investor looks at it and says, oh, that's a 10. And the other one says, no, that's a four, right? It is completely subjective. It's arbitrary it, to an extent. And it's largely aspirational. They're not bet. They're not always betting on the now. They're betting on the tomorrow, right? Because investors that invest in you know, in companies that are pre-IPO or pre-trade sale, they're coming in with an exit horizon where they're looking to step out of that investment at some point where there is a change of ownership and they can effectively do that. So, yeah, I understand that they want to have a, a lower valuation. That makes sense because when it exits, they get a better return. They're getting more, more equity out of that deal. But in the end, like it's still pseudoscience, right? Like, you know, who's going to offer the biggest valuation is oftentimes who is going to get to buy that, that chunk of the company. So it, to me, it's like, okay, it's, it's kind of interesting, but it's, you know, it's trying to put science in a, 
in the world of art or in the world of subjectivity a little bit more. Um, I, I do want to make one other point, though, which is from the founder side. Like, you know, we, we, we talk about creating different classes of stock as, as a preference for investors, but there's a lot of reasons why founders want to create those different classes of stock as well. And you can see these examples from Facebook to Google to lots of other big companies where the founders maybe own less than 10% of the company, but they still have decision-making control, right? Because they have, they have stock classes that have increased voting rights over the decision-making process. And what that does for the founders is it allows them to, to make decisions based on the long-term kind of vision of the company rather than, you know, quarterly earnings or immediate shareholder returns or dividends that a lot of stockholders might want. So it can, it can have, they can have great benefits for the sustainability, sometimes the ESG or the, the overall ethos of the company because the founders get to maintain that, that piece of control. So I think there are, there are pitfalls and great opportunities that come from those stock classes too. I maybe want to give you a bit of pushback regarding your first point, like why does it matter? What? Why does <laughs> yeah. it matter? Because in the end, who are the LPs? The MPs are typically like my pension funds or institutional investors of universities. And if they use these simple valuations, they might completely overestimate the amount of money that they are likely to make in the next years. And in that way, they might make investment decisions in that portfolio that are actually completely biased, which will actually hamper my, my, my poor pension if they make the wrong decisions. So in that way, I can see still an implication of misvaluating uh, private startups because, and especially because nowadays, I think the, the share of that kind of investments is increasing in, in investment, uh, in institutional investments. If they really miscalculate to such an extent, uh, we are not talking about five, 10%, we are talking about 50%. Uh, 50%. So then I think that might have huge implications on how they compose their portfolio. And in the end, that might have implications for my, uh, my savings account, I would say, given that I need to have my pensions from these guys. Fair enough, you know, but I, I, maybe I'll push back to your pushback a little bit, <laughs> which is, you know, are these, are, is your pension fund a direct investor or are they an LP, right? Because if they're an LP and they're part of a private equity fund or something else, right, they're deferring the decision-making rights to the GPs of those funds. They're also allocating capital in their kind of high-risk, you know, part of their portfolio. So they're making big bets on potential big returns, but also potential big losses. And in the LP agreements with the funds in which they're working with, they're not having operational day-to-day decision-making on where that money's invested. So they're not actually, in, they're not investing in the startup. They're investing in the fund that's investing in the startup, right? So I think there is a bit of a governance governance issue at play. And I think if you're the GP and you're running a fund, like your, what, your primary KPI is, are you able to deploy capital? 
right? And are, of course, are you able to get you know a nice IRR on that capital? So. I, I think if a, a pension fund is puckered up by high valuations, maybe they should put less of their invest less of their portfolio into into high risk. But with high risk can come great reward. No, and just one one final remark because today I heard on on a podcast uh, there was somebody congratulating an angel investor with his uh, angel money in gorillas because he was saying, oh, congratulations, because Getir is buying uh, gorillas, so you will get some money. And this angel investor was saying, actually, I have no clue what will happen because mm -hmm. I don't know. I have invested in series A. I have no clue what has happened in the subsequent series. And I will have to see in the end if I will still get money after all these Series B, Series C people uh, have exercised their rights. So actually, I don't know if you should congratulate me or maybe you should have pity with me because it might actually be that there's not much money on the table left when I'm uh, entering the table. So that I found is quite uh, an interesting uh, observation, I would say. Yeah, no, I'd say that is a good one. You know, the, the governance behind issuing new classes of stock, I think can be really problematic. I've seen it before with founders that were fired from their own companies, but they still maintained a large equity share. And the investors, rather than buying out that founder, they effectively diluted them out by issuing new stock, re-upping the option pool for the existing employees, and leaving the founders essentially with a class of their own that has no tangible value. So the governance piece can be, you know, it's tricky for sure. It can, it can ruin lives. Um, it is a lever that maybe is not always used for good. That's for sure. You need some lawyers. <laughs> yeah, lawyer up, brother. That is for sure. <laughs> All right, I will, uh, I'll turn the tables on myself and uh, talk about something that, uh, that made me learn recently. And um, I'm gonna talk about Taiwan, the small island nation off the coast of their superpower cousin, China, which has been in the news quite a bit lately. Um, I am particularly interested in Taiwan because my niece, Annie, recently moved to Taiwan as a Fulbright Scholar. Um, and, and the family has been kind of uh, making little side bets on, you know, will shit hit the fan while Annie's in Taiwan? Will the Chinese move in? You know, they've been doing these massive military exercises and, and kind of uh, pushing their might and uh, talking a bigger game than they have in, in a long time. Of course, you know, there's a long history going on there. Taiwan was largely populated and created by anti-communists, you know, that kind of headed there uh, during the, the kind of Maoist era. So it has this strong history of, of capitalism and connection to the West, but um, is very much tied to, to its neighbor. So in talking about Taiwan, I'm going to bring up uh, uh, a popular name that I think we've talked about before, but it is uh, the world's richest man, Elon Musk. So Elon Musk had quite a controversial interview uh, just a week or so ago with the, the Financial Times. You can read the article. It's called Aren't You Entertained? You can find it online. Um, and wow, does he talk about a lot of different things. 
um, including quite a few quotable notes about geopolitics. Now, as you probably know, uh, Mr. Musk can be quite the market mover. You know, a uh, hundred and 40 character tweets can literally on their own create billions of dollars of crypto market cap, uh, influence acquisitions of multi-billion dollar companies. We have probably all heard about what's going on with Twitter these days. But in recent weeks, he's really dove into, into geopolitics more than, than before. He's made some comments about... Uh, about Ukraine and Russia, and most recently he made some jarring comments about Taiwan. I'll read you the, the notable quote that came from this interview. He said, my recommendation would be to figure out a special administrative zone for Taiwan that is reasonably palatable, but probably won't make everybody happy. And it's possible, I think probably in fact, that they could have an arrangement that's more lenient than Hong Kong. First of all, maybe not a good analog considering what's been happening in Hong Kong lately. Nevertheless, this quote made the powers that be in China quite happy with the U.S. ambassador, or the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. tweeting, a bunch of uh, party leaders tweeting about it. Um, meanwhile, this literally enraged you know, the leadership of, of Taiwan. The reason being is for a long time, China has been kind of promoting this one country, two systems policy as their way that they could essentially annex Taiwan and reunify, in air quotes, Taiwan with mainland China. <coughs> now, okay, here's a rich guy that makes a comment about geopolitics. Where does it get interesting? Well, Tesla... Musk's company, one of Musk's companies, has a plant in Shanghai. That plant accounts for 30 to 50% of all of Tesla's production. And in the past month, that plant reached a record high, and China reached a record high of selling 83,000 new Teslas in the past month alone. So I wonder, you know, is it a surprise that Musk is suggesting the, the, the cessation of, of Taiwan to, to China? And that poses the question that I have for you, Dries, because I'd love your take on this. Um, you know, Musk's been talking a lot. He recently made statements about, about Ukraine and how Ukraine should compromise with Russia, just give them Crimea and let them get a win. And of course, the Ukrainians don't like that. Um, he recently, just a few days ago, shut off Starlink communications to Crimea, right? He's been providing Starlink comms to Ukraine during the conflict, and then he decides to shut them off to the, to the Crimean region. Meanwhile, he's firing his SpaceX Dragon rockets that are docking at the International Space Station, which is a joint U.S.-Russian initiative. And now here he is talking about Taiwan while, you know, the Chinese market is playing such a big role in the growth of Tesla. So question, do you think Elon Musk is leveraging his platform to kind of drive earnings to his companies? Maybe he he thinks that way, but I think 
I think it's not the smart way to move. I, I do, so I really don't understand why he now suddenly gets so engaged in this kind of discussions. Whereas I think you always create a losing situation, at least for one end of one part of the. So you have two, you have two markets, and you are active in both markets. And by making these comments, you're at least antagonizing one part of the market. Whereas if you keep your mouth shut <laughs> you're not maybe pleasing but you're not antagonizing also so for me it's very strange why he's doing that now i think that's fair you know so one one hypothesis is that he's hanging out in austin smoking a bunch of weed with joe rogan and talking nonsense right that that's a possibility here's another option so just this morning i was doing my morning walk to the office and continuing my podcast that I listened to along the way while I was working out at the gym. And I was listening to one of my recent favorite podcasts called Acquired. I think you, you enjoy that one as well. If you guys haven't checked out Acquired, amazing, amazing. You can learn about the whole story of companies and how they went from idea to, to acquisition or IPO. I was listening to a podcast episode today on the global semiconductor company TSMC. If you're not familiar with TSMC, that's Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company. It's the 14th largest company in the world and the world's largest pure semiconductor foundry. Now, you might be saying 14th largest company in the world. How do how come I've never heard of this before? Well, they've never spent a dollar on marketing. They are one of the pure, maybe the world's largest B2B only company. They operate very much behind the scenes. However, their products are literally the source of most of the technologies we use today. They're the chips in, in our iPhones, in our gaming consoles, in our televisions, in our, in our automobiles, in our home appliances. Recent statistics said that the, their semiconductors are directly linked to 30% of the global economy. They happen to be based in Taiwan. So I was like, well, this is really interesting as I'm exploring this topic. So I started to do a little research and dig a little deeper. And I, I then found an article that said Tesla considering switching to TSMC's chips. So I dug in a bit deeper to try to understand that. So currently Tesla's kind of primary chip that they use is this Samsung seven nanometer chip, um, which is not the market leader. TSMC's chip is arguably better and, uh, and just a, a higher quality chip in general. Now TSMC is coming out with a new seven nanometer chip with like higher innovation, better transistor architecture. Now Tesla's seeing this going, hmm, that's a pretty compelling proposition, but this company, there's a global chip shortage. This company is supplying everyone from Ford motor cars to Apple to Nvidia and beyond. Made me wonder, you know, if Musk and Tesla is in good graces with China, and, Ch and China indeed annexes Taiwan, and they would thus take a giant company that's 50% owned by Taiwan 
and nationalize it as part of the Chinese economy, who's going to get preference on those chips? So I don't want to necessarily say there has to be malicious intent there, but with what we've seen with Ukraine and Russia, what we've seen he's been doing with Twitter, now what we see that he's talking about China, there are enough dots and lines drawn that make you wonder if there is, uh, if someone is pulling some strings behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting way to think about his position. And so I, I think, but for me then still, I don't understand. Actually, I can understand some more the comments about Taiwan because indeed I see, I agree with you. There is a clear competitive advantage here for him to make. With the Ukraine, I don't see it. And also there, like you said, his behavior is going into very different directions. So on the one hand, he gives the Ukrainian uh, people the Starlink, and then then he's making these comments. And apparently it was now in the news that they even coordinated with Putin about what he wanted to say. So for me, that's much more difficult to explain. And there I've more like, <laughs> this is just a crazy guy that is out of control. With Taiwan, indeed, I could say that I can see the economic reasoning behind it. Mm -hmm. But maybe one more thing to add. Actually, there is even a more important company in the story. Mm -hmm. And that's ASML in the Netherlands. Yes, that's right. They are actually, they are the ones that are the most strategic company in this whole thing because they are producing the machines with which you make these chips. And they are the only one that can do it. Yeah. And it's it's amazing i recently saw a documentary about that this company the the engineering the r&d that this company does is at a level that is almost unbelievable and so there is even pressure on a political level between china and the netherlands because they realize that if this company is no longer sending the machines to china to produce the chips china loses the battle for the chips so okay. it's crazy how a, a company in Eindhoven in the Netherlands today mm -hmm. has become the dominant player in the chip industry. Um, so that, yeah. I think, is a nice addition to the whole story of yeah. TSMC. Of course. It sure is. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up ASML because one of the things the guys were talking about on, on Acquired was this relationship between ASML and TSMC. These companies hold so much skill and knowledge and synergy with what they do that they were talking like, could you, could you airlift TSMC out of Taiwan? And feasibly, you could airlift all the people out. You know, ASML no longer provides the resource and China would be sitting on a shell of a factory that they literally don't know how to operate. And the stuff that they do with like molten tin is fascinating. They, what they said they do, they do more calculations per second than the total number of calculations that went into the Apollo mission. They do that every single second of the day. So this is, it's literally arguably the most high-tech company in the world. Um, you know, they, they talk about, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Hamilton uh, Helmer's Seven Powers, which are kind of like the characteristics of companies that make them like great investments. But um, one of the seven powers is like, does it have a moat? 
Like, is there a moat around the castle that makes it impenetrable? And one could argue that ASML-TSMC partnership is the deepest, strongest moat on earth. And the only way that those two companies together would ever lose global dominance and it is absolutely dominance in this industry, would be a profound paradigm shift. You know, some type of new quantum computing technology that would no longer require semiconductors and, and transistors. So the, these two companies that nobody really thinks about or knows about are arguably the two most together, the most powerful corporate structure, corporate partnership, maybe in the history of the world. And I think another interesting fact is that both companies had as an early shareholder Philips. So Philips mm-hmm. was a core shareholder in TSMC and ASML spin out of Philips. So if Philips would have been smart, they would have now owned the semiconductor industry and would have been, I don't know, 100 times its current market valuation. But uh, that didn't happen. I'll tell you one more little side note that I just loved about it. So... TSMC's founder, 93 years old, I believe, his name is Morris Chang. He actually came from modest means, moved to the U.S., got an education, worked for a bunch of different companies, was a mechanical engineer, taught himself electrical engineering. Fascinating story within itself. But when he went back to Taiwan and started TSMC, he was tasked, he became a minister in the, the Taiwanese government, and he was tasked to basically, they're like, you have this experience in the semiconductor industry, we should build a foundry here. So they brought him on board to be the founder of this company. The Taiwanese government owned 50% of it. He helped raise the remaining 50% in funds. And he became the founder and CEO of this company with zero equity. He was a government employee, right? Over the course of the past 50 years, he, out of his own pocket and his relatively modest in comparison salary as a you know, well-paid government employee, but still a government employee, began to purchase stock in the company that he was building. He's now worth $3 billion, but he literally did that saving up money and buying stock in his own company where he was never given a single share of. Love that story. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that was a long one, but that was a fun one. Thanks. (laughs) So, Dries, back to you. Yeah. um, It's something that made you think this time. Yes, and it's something that made me think uh, during the summer, and and I think we didn't have yet the opportunity to talk about, and and this was really a story where I really was thinking like, here, I would like to hear the opinion of Garrett about what is going on. And this is about uh, Adam Newman. (laughs) Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork. Uh, I think everybody knows the story was at a certain point had a crazy valuation of, I think, 47 billion, backed up by a SoftBank. Then it turned out that it was uh, clearly not 47 billion. They tried to do an IPO. The story collapsed. Adam Newman had to leave. There were a lot of side stories about him having a lot of uh, private jets, uh, his wife being involved doing crazy things. And we have all seen the series and the documentaries about it. 
And so, of course, I, he was seen as an example of this crazy uh, entrepreneur that made a lot of even things that are ethically questionable. And then suddenly in August, there was the press release that with his new company, Flow, he received 300 million of investment from Andreessen Horowitz. And the only thing that is out there at the moment is a pitch deck. And so I think in Europe, every commentator, all the newspapers were really like going crazy. Like, how is this possible that this happens? This cannot be. This is totally crazy. How does this make sense? This is irrational, blah, blah, blah. And then I started listening to some US podcasts. I think we talked about the all-in podcast before, uh, but several other ones. And then when you hear these guys talking about it, they say, yeah, no, why not? Because this guy is a real entrepreneur. So why should you not give them 300 million? Mm -hmm. And so I found it very intriguing that there seems to be this huge cultural difference in how we look at this kind of events. So on the one hand, I think in Europe, there is this feeling like these people should be punished and they should not get a second chance. They should, uh, it's it's like almost Catholic, like you should punish for your misbehavior. Uh, whereas the American culture seems to much more like, okay, he failed, but he has this entrepreneurial spirit. So let's give him a second chance. And so I, I was very interested in knowing your position about this story. How would you look at this? Ah, uh, that's a tough one, you know, because like from a, a rational utilitarian perspective, I understand why capital flows into those kinds of places. There is a proven founder, right? Like the, the gross overvaluation of WeWork and, um, and the kind of subsequent me the subsequent kind of collapse in that valuation was equally if not more the fault of the investors as it was of the founders so i don't know if adam newman should be blamed for mismanagement of we work that being said there are certainly whispers and rumors and, you know, potentially things that were settled out of court in terms of sexual harassment and inappropriate creating hostile work environments and things of that sort. To me, that is profoundly problematic. You know, I guess there was erratic behavior and drug use and things like that as well. A little more lenient on that. But if you're creating a toxic work environment and you're harassing, you know, people, that is obviously a, a, a bad sign, you know? So, you know, it, I think it very much comes down to an ethos, right? Anderson is kind of historically known for betting on those kind of bets, right? Keeping it, keeping it in the family, right? And interestingly, they tend to, you know, they, Anderson op modeled themselves off, off the creative artists agency, which kind of re transformed uh, Hollywood, as we know it, while kind of operating operating under the under the radar a little bit. So one thing I'm sure of is Anderson was not particularly pleased with the negative press that came out of this. I don't know if they didn't anticipate it or 
or they thought, well, hey, maybe this guy's transgressions aren't as bad. But if you look at the real arguments behind this investment, it's not so much that the guy's a bad businessman, at least from the, the investment community in the US. The argument is the guy's a bad person, you know? And, and to me, that becomes an ethical question. So I think when you look from a rational perspective, it, first of all, the venture concept of flow actually is quite interesting and it has a very nice social impact component, right? It's essentially helping people become homeowners that otherwise couldn't be and accrue wealth, right? And like in the US and much of other parts of the world, homeownership is kind of the first indicator of, of wealth creation. Right. So and in the U.S., that's really embedded in the in the American dream. Right. And, and in the psyche, this model is tackling a massive market. It conceptually has good outcomes that are tied to it. But if there's a crappy person at the helm with bad ethics, you know, when does the utility um, take a backseat to ethos? So would I do that investment? I would probably, I know I would always choose ethics over returns, but that's just me. I also don't have, you know, 250 billion assets under management or whatever Anderson has and those kind of LPs behind them. So, yeah, because as I understood it, I think he's never been convicted about really him doing inappropriate behavior. It was more that in in his company, there was a kind of atmosphere where inappropriate behavior was to some extent tolerated. I think that was the, the big thing. Not so. Well, apparently he did a lot of drugs while he was working. That was kind of par part of the story, which not sure is the, the best move. But, you know, I, 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 he's one of those personalities that I'm torn on. Like, I can't get past the sexual harassment stuff. Like if that really was the kind of crap he was doing, you know, F him in, in my opinion. But when I look at him in the context of a, an entrepreneur, you know, I think, wow, WeWork, I think was pretty transformative in what it's done for the future of work, even though it may not have had the, the big returns. Frankly, I think they're an overpriced product. That's why I'm here at Mindspace, which I like a lot better. And I looked at WeWork, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually be a customer, but I appreciate what it's done in priming that, that ecosystem. I think Flow, conceptually at least, they're, they're literally only a, a landing page too, right? So, and they've been kind of in that pseudo-stealth mode for quite a long time. The overall problem that they're tackling, I think, is an interesting one. What was interesting is a few months ago, um, reports came out that he's actually behind another venture that he's founded in parallel. And it's a company called Flow Carbon. And it's a blockchain-based carbon credit trading platform. So, you know, I'm sure that's of his billion in wealth that he got out of that, uh, out of that buyout, you know, building a, a, a carbon trading platform on blockchain is, doesn't cost a whole lot of money. Maybe that's his way of greenwashing his public persona. I don't know, but I would say I like the businesses that he's created, but, you know, giving him a benefit of the doubt, of course, I don't seem to think he's a very good dude. No, I, 
I have to say, I, I watched an, um, the interview we did with Andrew Sos, uh, Ross Sorkin. So that's actually the only, only real interview we gave after he left WeWork. So it, I think it was in November 2021. And in that interview, to be honest, they focus really on the business part. And then if you listen to him, it was like, okay, this guy is not crazy. He knows what he's talking about. And he actually could quite quite nicely kind of respond to a lot of the allegations, again, more from the business perspective. So it's, it went about uh, this the amount of money you got for the Wii logo and the private jets and stuff like that. And there actually, he was able to at least convince me that he was not a crazy guy that was just spending money like hell for no reason. Um, so that that at least changed my mind a bit, I have to say, which which yeah. which which felt difficult because morally, I, I'm not really in favor of this kind of practices, but at least uh, it it made more sense in that way that somebody like Andreessen Horowitz would give three hundred million to this guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we, I guess maybe the answer is we res we reserve judgment. You know, it's it's interesting. There, are so many of the great entrepreneurs in history, and if you. If you listen to the Acquired podcast, maybe you've listened to the stories of John D. Rockefeller or Sam Walton or some of, or many of the the greats of of the past. And if you look at their maybe some of their behaviors and in the way they manage their practices, they don't stand the test of time particularly well. But their legacies of their businesses have transformed the way that we live. And I think this is just a, a topic and I don't want to get too deep into it, but you know, it, and, I, and I'm excluding Adam, Adam Newman from this because the crap that he did wasn't, wasn't that long ago. But if we look into the future, 50 years from now, a hundred years from now, when we look back on these, on these stories, like what is, you know, is this, is it a net positive? Right. Like are, are the things that this founder created, you know, have they led to a better humanity? Jury's jury's still out. But. No, no. All right. Let's talk about a better humanity or maybe a not better humanity. <laughs> so for listeners, maybe maybe some of our Gen Zers or you know, maybe even Gen Xers like me that occasionally will doom scroll on Instagram or um, people that uh, use TikTok frequently may be familiar with this concept. I admit I wasn't until I came across it. It's the concept of quiet quitting. And NPR, one of my favorite relatively unbiased news sources out of my, my homeland, uh, wrote an article not so long ago, uh, called The Economics Behind Quiet Quitting and What We Should Call It Instead. So for those of you that don't know, this is a relatively new concept, quiet quitting. And in short, it's the idea of not quitting your job, but quitting the idea of going above and beyond at your work. So you're still performing your, your minimum duties, but really nothing more. And the justification is one, an individual's worth shouldn't be determined by their labor. The article has a really nice quote. I'll read it real quick. It says, it's about divorcing your ego from what you do for a living and not striving for perfection. Setting boundaries and simply completing the tasks you're supposed to complete within the time that you're paid to do them with no extra fills. 
No more kowtowing to your boss or customers. No more working nights and weekends or incessantly checking your email. What does that mean? So with quiet quitting, you know, being a workaholic is out, you know, coasting on the easy train is in, you know, that they called it the, the work-life balance manifesto, which I thought was quite a chuckle. Now, this is a far cry from some of the kind of work philosophies that I was exposed to when I was younger. Um, I was always attracted to the Japanese stuff, like concept of ikigai is always uh, something I've appreciated, but I really also like the Japanese concept of shokunin. And shokunin is this like, this, this traditional Japanese belief that uh, artisans should be dedicated to their craft and they should be striving for perfection, right? It kind of creates the working man kind of you know, culture in Japan. It also has led to great works of beauty and design and, and art and whatnot. Even with that and that kind of historical context that I think my generation, my parents' generation probably adhered to a lot more, a recent Gallup poll said that quiet quitting has permeated U.S. work life to the tune of over 50%. That means half of the American workforce has kind of fallen into this quiet quitting state. So put that in context. Why the hell is this happening? <laughs> this is where the jury is out, right? So quite a lot of the, the vocal voices behind this believe this is just kind of a post-pandemic post zeitgeist. You know, people are returning to their office. They've been enjoying the creature comforts of working from home. They're now being forced back into the offices and they're just bitter and they're not interested and they're over it. You know, other people tie it to the job market, you know, and the, particularly the labor shortage and how companies are less inclined to terminate people's employment, which is thus giving those you know, workers a greater sense of security, thus less fear, less incentive to try harder. And then there's a, a pretty good size majority that actually points the finger at management and just says, look, this is a result of bad management. You know, it might be pandemic, it might just be kind of bad management in general, but leaders not actively engaging with their employees and, you know, showing concern for their well-being, particularly with a younger generation of workforce that's seeking more purpose in their work. And like, this is a leadership problem and not a cultural or systemic problem. So that's where I'm gonna leave that, Dries. And that's why I wanted to pass it off to you as a, as a scholar and also a, a fellow Gen Xer. Like, what do you, what do you think? What do you think is the cause of this? Yeah, it's actually coincidence, but so I'm, I'm teaching a course on digital transformation in our MBA program. And actually last weekend, I was discussing with the students exactly this topic. So quite quitting. And actually, and so I have to give credit here to the MBA students. One of them said, I don't think it's quite quitting. I think it's economic optimizing, namely what he gave as a kind of hypothesis is these people are not working less. They are working a lot, but no longer only for their employer. So they, they reduce the amount they need to do 
for their former employers so that they have a lot of additional time to work in the creator economy or whatever you do as a freelancer. So it's not about working less, but it's about kind of economically optimizing your time so that you can maximize your internal investment. Hmm. And so from an employer perspective, it looks like quite quitting. Oh, they're not willing to make additional hours. They're not willing to work in a weekend, but maybe it's simply because they have other jobs going on at these times, hmm. which I found an hmm. interesting alternative explanation for what is going on. That That is interesting. I think I'm going to um, I'm going to show my age on this one a little bit, and I'm gonna I, I, I I'm gonna pose a, a a very knee jerk reaction to that. I found it really interesting that you just had that conversation, and that was the kind of response, you know, as the as the parent of a millennial, um, and obviously having worked in a university as well and been around a lot of young people, and I think there's this pr prevailing discourse of the dopamine generation, you know, the, uh, the desire for instant gratification. And I'm wondering how that plays in, right? If you're going to do the minimal in your day job so you can, you know, make more cash in your side hustle, what that's doing is giving you more cash in the now, but it's not investing in the long-term returns of working your way through a hierarchy or a corporate ladder or whatever that might be. So is it a result is this a a decision of you know utility maximization and how do I make the most out of life? Or is it, you know, give me more now and I'll sacrifice, you know, the bigger returns later. Yeah, and indeed, we have here the risk that we start talking as like two 60-year-olds talking about <laughs> young people. But I see your point uh, that you might say they go for the short-term gratification, maybe at the cost of long-term investment in a in a prosperous career. That it's... So, the, the, and I think the, the, the other piece that's really worth thinking about is like, okay, so let's say this trend exists. We can think about the why and we can, you know, there, there can be different perspectives on that. But as an employer, what the hell am I going to do about it? How am I going to, how am I going to shift the trend? And this is something that I think about a lot, right? I think about it with my employees now. I think about it reflexively and reflectively with my employees in the past. And, you know, what kind of work environment are we creating? Right. And, you know, so much comes around, comes down to, you'll love it, Dries, behavioral psychology. I know it's your favorite topic, but like, you know, it really does come down very much so to, you know, motivation and, and goals, right? Like are, are your, is this career or this job, you know, driven by intrinsic, a balance of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation? And is it leading you to toward whatever the, those longer term goals are? You know, Daniel Pink will say autonomy, mastery and purpose, right? You know, all workers need need those three things. Are we are we literally commoditizing labor to the point that they don't feel those psychological needs. Is there something that we can do about it? I think the idea we're seeing it in a labor shortage is we just pay more. And maybe that drives limited retention, but is that solving the core problem?
Yeah, and I think, of course, during the pandemic, a lot of people have thought about their lives and, and what the role of work should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's that's still having an impact. So I think these different explanations are also related to each other, I think. So it's, it is that I think employers took way too much for granted that they could exploit their employees and that it is normal to work much more than you're contractually obliged. I think people, because of the pandemic, have started to look in a different perspective uh, to what the, the, the role of work is in their life. And at the same time, they have also kind of identified alternative ways to make money and have fun, like doing a podcast. <laughs> so in that way, I think all these things together, yeah, I think are part of the explanation why we see it and why it will be quite challenging to solve it, I think. I, I, I just, just love it that you brought up as podcasting as a way to make money. Am I missing something here? We are not yet at that point. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm like, do you know something that I don't trace? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You know, at the risk of making this the longest, longest inspiration session ever, let's get down to our third and final chapter of this, which is something that made you laugh. Yeah. So let me start. And, and this is... Uh, a research that, that was also reported in The Economist, that's where I, I found it, which, which, which I thought was quite funny and therefore I want to share it with you. <laughs> and the title of the, the research is Sniffing Out New Friends, Similarity in Body, body Odor Predicts the Quality of Same-Sex Non-Romantic Dyadic Interactions. <laughs> quite an intriguing title, I would say. Yes. Uh, and so actually... The question that the uh, authors wanted to answer is, do people that see each other as friends, do they smell more similar than people that do not see themselves as friends? And so they did quite, as a first step, quite straightforward experiment. So they had a sample of friends and they all were forced to wear a kind of T-shirt and they also had a sample of people that were strangers to each other. And they also had sample of T-shirts and they had to wear them for one day. And then they had these e-noses. So nowadays mm-hmm. you have electronic devices to really smell <laughs> T-shirts. And they also hired what, what they called professional smellers, which for me was a very interesting <laughs> occupation to have that <laughs> you're a professional smeller. But <laughs> that's not that too deep into that. That could be a good job. That could also be a terrible, terrible job. <laughs> um, and so indeed, by doing the, the all the measurements quite advanced, they found out that people that see themselves as friends smells more similar than people that see themselves as strangers. But then the second question came, namely, what is that here, the causation? Mm-hmm. Is it that people that have similar smells get attracted to each other? Mm-hmm. Or is it that when you are a f- when you're friends, you start smelling like each other? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the, the question is. And so they actually found evidence for the first thing. So mm-hmm. um, in the end, what did they do? They, again, asked people to wear T-shirts and then they asked people to play a game. And then they had to indicate after the playing game how pleasant they experienced the conversation. However, the assumption is if you feel attracted to this person, you will have experienced the game as more attractive than when you don't feel attracted to this person. Mm -hmm. And then, indeed, they observed that people that smell similar up front 
are more likely to experience the interaction in an attractive way. And so the explanation mm -hmm. that they have is that actually similar smell is a proxy for overlapping genes. Uh, hmm. So overlapping genetic structure, and so that in the end, when you have similar a similar genetic structure, that you are evolutionary more attracted to each other. That that was their hmm. explanation hmm. for their findings about why people that smell in a similar way might feel more attracted to each other, even in a non-romantic same-sex uh, position. Interesting. Wow. I mean, the first thing I think of is, is this the next great dating app that's based on s smell, smell and swipe? <laughs> um, you know, this is a topic I, I, I was surprised to kind of hear this one. First of all, surprised to hear it coming from you, but just surprised that this one in general, because it may be related. You know, this is my closest contribution to a topic I don't know that much about, but, you know, a lot of people talk about pheromones, right? And different plants and animals can excrete these the pheromones of different kinds, right? And, you know, we often anthropomorphize a lot of these things and we talk about human pheromones. Um, there, there's like the great scene in Anchorman where he's got the, the, the cologne that he uses to like attract, attract mates. But I, I remember looking this up a, a while back and What's interesting is there is actually no evidence for human sexual pheromones at all. And they've been looking at this for 50 years and they found no clear evidence. However, there is, there is a, a chemical that humans produce, or a group of chemicals that humans produce called uh, auxiliary steroids. And these are produced in male testes and female ovaries and in, in both of our adrenal glands, I believe. And um, one of these steroids in particular has been studied quite extensively. It's called androstenol. And androstenol is one of these, you know, it, uh, these steroids that, that we produce. And there was a study I think it was in like the 1970s, something like that. But they did this, you know, double blind study where they took a group of people and they gave them surgical masks to wear. And in some of those surgical masks, they put drops of androstenol on it and other surgical masks they didn't. And then they showed the participants of these studies different images of people and animals and buildings and a, and a few, other, few other groups. And they asked them to kind of rate their attractiveness. And the people that had the androstenol in their, in their masks rated uh, the images of people as like warmer and more friendly and, and more attractive, right? Um, so they found a pretty strong correlation between this particular endogenous steroid and the way we perceive attractiveness. There was another study, I think, where they did it with like with uh, groups of women, and they found that uh, the women that were ovulating had great and had this like influence of this this steroid had greater you know, greater perceptions of attractiveness. So maybe it's not pheromones. Maybe it's, you know, our genetic makeup looking for like, although, 
if you if you think of evolutionary biology like it's not conducive for our survival and reproduction to go to such similar you know genetic makeups right so i find that really really interesting yeah i was exactly thinking the same i thought you you need more like kind of the difference so that's for me was also interesting yeah, I don't want to know if my other half has DNA very similar to me. <laughs> that sounds way too middle ages for my, for my taste. All right. Well, in, in light of uh, our very long episode, I'll try to keep my little piece of uh, uh, something that made me, me chuckle as short as possible. Um, what I want to talk about is chocolate bunnies. Okay. <laughs> and um, you're talking with a Belgian guy, so chocolate is important for me. You know? <laughs> I know, I know. There might be a reason I picked this out. But uh, first of all, I just want to caveat like, when we talk about business and entrepreneurship, it's not that easy to find things that are super funny. You know, we might need to change this topic to like things that we found ironic or something along, along those lines. But I, I read this article. Um, just just the other day um, about the German grocery chain Lidl. And the, the title of the article is Lidl told to destroy gold, gold chocolate bunnies after it loses copyright case to Lint. Um, you know, as you guys know, Lidl, German, you know, low-cost supermarket chain, Lint, one of the iconic chocolate brands, right, from Switzerland. So... You probably remember, I certainly remember being a child, um, these golden, these gold foil wrapped bunnies. They had little red ribbons around their neck and you'd get them in your little Easter basket or you might find them on your Easter egg hunt. Lint has been selling millions of these bunnies for, for decades. Um, Interestingly, who would have funk it, but those bunnies are actually extremely valuable intellectual property. Wh what makes it the intellectual property? Is it the incredible chocolate that's inside? Oh, no, no. It is the color of the gold wrapping and the fact that the bow is red. <laughs> so Lidl looked into this and said, hey, we can make gold bunnies too we'll just put a green bow around its neck instead of, instead of a red one. So Lint said, hang on a second. We're not happy with this. You're stealing, you're stealing our iconic bunny. We're going to take you to court and sue you for the rights of our, our unique iconic bunny back. So they went to a Swiss copyright court and um, I found the outcome to be quite funny. So. As you know, as a Belgian, and I think my, my Swiss friends as well, are great lovers of chocolate. It is a great part of their history, their culture, and maybe for some people even a little bit of personal identity. This was in a Swiss court, and uh, naturally the, the Swiss court ended up siding with Lint and ruling that Lidl needs to destroy their chocolate bunnies. But, being the Swiss chocolate lovers they are, 
you know, the civilized Swiss court said, well, you know, we want you to destroy all these bunnies and never do this again. But the last thing we'd want you to do is waste perfectly good chocolate. So if you want to, you can unwrap all the bunnies, melt them down, and turn them into something else. <laughs> and all I kept thinking about was the poor bastards working in this factory. They're like, here's a million bunnies. We would like you to peel all the wrapping off so you can, so you can melt this thing down again. So what do you think, Dries? Does, uh, do, you think, do you think this is fair? Do you think uh, the Belgians would want to preserve the chocolate over all others as well? Not the German chocolate, to be honest. No, right. I refuse to eat that one. It's really of inferior quality. So, <laughs> In Belgium, we are very strict about the percentage mm -hmm. of uh, the cacao that needs to be in the chocolate. So that's a very special thing there. <laughs> I was talking to Hannah earlier about, you know, eating chocolates in Belgium and eating chocolates we were in Zurich last weekend and you know she said that we first of all the money we spent on chocolate in, in Switzerland it was ludicrous because you know everything is expensive everything's expensive there but she basically said that like her chocolate experience in Belgium was Belgium was like unforgettable and the Swiss was like Meh, pretty good you know my response was I mean we come from the land of Hershey bars so what the hell do we know about good chocolate good chocolate anyways <laughs> I will, I will, I will. The next time when I go to Belgium, I will bring you the real stuff with me, with you. <laughs> Dries, if if you could only pack something, I personally would rather have Belgian beer because you 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 may say Belgians do the best chocolate, but I have no doubt in my mind that your people make the best damn beer in the world. <laughs> That's another thing that we do quite well. Yeah. That's right. All right, man. Always fun. Always a pleasure. Interesting conversation, longer than usual, but uh, but enjoyable nevertheless. So, looking forward to our next inspiration session. And man, you always surprise me. Sometimes you come in with like the most academic kind of stuff, and you, you threw me for a loop today. I'm like, which side am I on? Do I need to start like <laughs> digging into PubMed or <laughs> some journals? But really fun, man. Appreciate you. Look forward to the next time. Yes, this was great. Well, folks, that's a wrap on the latest inspiration session. Much thanks goes out to my co-host, Professor Dries Foms, for joining us with his insights as usual. And of course, stay tuned for our next episode in a few weeks. And as usual, don't forget to like, subscribe, or leave us a five-star review on your favorite streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.